Welcome to Lectionary Call Lens for June 6th of 2023, where two lay persons, a pastor, and an academician gather each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. And today we gather at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And for our friend Charles Willard in Minnesota, he's not with us, but we look forward to reconnecting with him soon. And our other friend, our other pastor who sits in the pasture seat, Bill Hull, is traveling and looks forward to rejoining us each week. I know he listens and watches. We say hello to Bill. We'll see you next week. And uh, this gives us a great opportunity, of course, great opportunity to connect with John Ryder again. Uh, He's the director of adult faith formation of the church that makes this podcast possible. Uh, John achieved a Master's of Divinity and Master's of Christian Education from Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond. More on John in just a moment. A little more about how things work on this podcast if you're a newcomer. Uh, This Sunday is June 11th, and uh, we prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader. And then in this podcast, we share, question, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. John Ryder in Valrico, Florida. I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And today's lectionary, or the lectionary for the coming Sunday, June 11th, is Matthew 9, 9 through 13. And then the lectionary skips a few verses, picks up with verse 18, and finishes with verse 26. So I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, and then we'll jump into some discussion. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader from the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout that district. That's the word of the Lord. Three, uh, three formative questions today, and we'll, we'll get into the first with a heads up to you, Sarah. You'll go first. Uh, and I've titled this question, No Need of a Physician. So we're going to focus on verse 12. Uh, the verse includes a popular, well-known statement from Jesus. But what does it really say 
about his relationship with the onlookers, the critics, and the questioners. And I would say us in the 21st century, too. Is he, is he setting out a binary view about who needs a physician? Is it a binary view of the world as either sick or healthy? Who actually needs a physician? Sarah? Well, um, I think it has something to do with how we understand our relationship to Jesus. Are we hungry for grace or are we full of ourselves? Do we perceive our sinfulness and separation from God or do we see ourselves as blameless? Might how we see ourselves impact how we respond to this call to follow? Is obedience a part of that story? Uh, Being called to something might mean letting go of other things which would prevent us from obedience. Kind of like, let me finish doing what I'm doing first and then I'll come and help or do what you need me to do. Um, sick, Sick people need the doctor to live. Those who consider themselves well don't seek a doctor. Jesus calls Matthew because he's reclaiming an outcast as a part of God's family. Tax collector would have been shunned. For all for all intents and purposes, the public opinion of them was very, let's just say, not very favorable. Um, this passage presents us with multiple stories of restoration of acceptance and wholeness and identity. Jesus, the bonus um, is Jesus follows Matthew. Jesus follows the synagogue leader to his home. Uh, So Jesus follows, uh, like surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So for me, that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition to stand in full need of grace, but deny I am am, uh, a person who will ask for it. Thank you. How about you, John? I, I think um, my initial response to the question was, yeah, it, in some ways it does seem pretty binary. Uh, we've got those who are sick and we've got um, those who who are well and don't need a physician. Um, but then my mind also goes that I just called the other day to schedule my annual physical and I'm doing well and I'm going to go see a physician. And I do that once a year just to kind of check in on how things are going. So, uh, I see a physician regardless of whether, sometimes, whether I'm sick or, or not. Um, but I think uh, beyond that, as we kind of look at this story, um, you know, especially pairing that moment with these healing stories that come, um, there's a recognition, I think, that we're all in need of some healing, um, that we're all unhealthy in some ways. Um, and, and I think there's a point being made of, recognizing our unwellness or recognizing our need for help, our need of healing, our need of Christ's mercy in particular. And, and I think the Pharisees who are questioning there, they, um, you know, Jesus doesn't say those who, you know, there's those who are well and those who are sick and you guys are well, you don't need to worry about this. That statement's not made. So I think there's some degree of assumption being made. The Pharisees are making an assumption that, um, that they're well, they're, that, that, that they are in that camp. Um, but I think from a Protestant perspective, we'd say that we all fall short of the glory of God. We are all, um, you know, totally depraved and sinners. And, and, and that kind of thinking of that relationship to, to Christ, as Sarah was kind of talking about, we all 
um, are in need of some um, wellness. Uh, and so, I don't know, for me, I think we like to all think we've got it all figured out. We like to be in control. Um, and it, this, these stories here for me remind me that all it takes is, is a sickness, a disease, a natural disaster, a loss of a job, some kind of turmoil in our life. Um, and the script of how we're in control gets flipped and we're in a moment of crisis. And, and what I hear in, in two of these stories, both the woman who seeks healing and then the leader is desperation. Um, and so uh, desperation and, and a combination of desperation of faith. But in that desperation, um, coming to Christ, asking for healing and mercy. And um, I think where I, where I connect with that is I do that. I know lots of people that it's, it's those moments of crisis is when they have their relationship with Christ. It's in, I'm, I, I'm not in control. This is not well. I need Christ's mercy and healing. Um, and so um, I do think it is, there is, to kind of get back to that question about, you know, is it, is it a binary view? I think it is. But I think the question after that was who needs the position? And I think we all do. Um, and that, that gets picked up, I think, throughout this passage, which is what I really love. It. These are faith stories. These are healing stories. But really it's about um, inclusion and who's, who's part of the kingdom. And so to me, we're all in need of the physician um, which challenges me to say, who are the folks in, in the world around me today, besides myself, who, who need the physician? Who's the outsiders? Who's the marginalized? Who's the tax collector? Um, how, and how do I extend Christ's love and mercy to them? Thank you. I, I, like, uh, I like that it starts with fellowship and dining. It's uh, mm-hmm. almost like there's this subtext of, like, there's health and fellowship. It starts, and Jesus has pursued that fellowship. He he starts. He's the first pursuer, and then he gets pursued, and it's both. He's 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 chasing, and then people are chasing him. But it starts with this fellowship. And I, yeah, you talk about you know, people in the day, and like it's a reminder to me that uh, there have been times in my life when I have not felt comfortable, or not I've I've created my own rules or my own static expectations about how protocols work. And I've had good friends like, why, why aren't you? Why don't you? Shouldn't you try? And they push and it's a, it's a wonderful thing to walk into new places and new rooms, new relationships. It's wonderful. You have to do it to, to talk about the change. It's almost an evangelistic thing. It's like, try it. You'll like it. It's great. The food's good. And the conversation's excellent. Try it. The water's great. Dive in great. I, I just as I read this, it's like, man, I don't say that enough when there's breakthrough. And this is about change. And so it starts with the fellowship. I, I'm, uh, I'm really attracted to what you said, John, about the binary. I didn't know what the, you know, the answers would be. I raised the question, is it binary? And I liked it. And you're like, yeah, it is. And uh, it's almost like a, a, a resource or a tool. It's like if you can start with binary, then you can really see the interplay and what I what I imagine, Sarah, if I was putting a scene together, like uh, like a stage scene or something, to make a point, and I'd have people who weren't pursuing at the time, to your point, John, people not mm-hmm. seeming out of need, 
going, well, that's interesting. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think this is appropriate. Do you think this is appropriate? No, I don't think it's appropriate. Would you eat with those people? Oh, no, 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 no. This is a mess. This isn't, isn't really good. And then you, you have the second scene, which is, uh, you know, I'll use your name, sir. It's like, what are you doing, Sarah? It's like, well, I've, I've got a sick member of my family. I love them, and I'm responsible, and I'm going. I'm pursuing him. Yeah, but I thought we were all together on this. Wait, wait, John, what are you doing? Well, what are you? Well, I, I got to talk to Jesus. Things have changed. Things have changed. I'm going to go pursue Jesus. I thought we were together here. What's what's the problem? Well, the problem is uh, love, responsibility, sympathy, urgency, sickness takes over. And this, what's the next thing that happens? Is it, wait, where are you going? I'm going to go talk to the teacher. I have to oh. pursue. One, one modification in your scene, I'd have a tax collector come over with a plate and go, hey, do you want some? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, let me help you. you gotta, yeah, if you're running over there, let me help you speed up. I'll keep your stuff for you. I'll carry it for you as you go over there. And I think there's something about that breakout. It's like we don't really hold together. So it's binary until life happens. And it's okay. Because you know, I think this judgment that comes along with the breakout, which is like, oh, are we being scolded for only seeing Jesus when we're in a desperate strait? Uh-uh. No, no. Jesus can pursue. And at the same time, we have this great need, which goes to this beautiful internal discussion that this woman has. And we get to reveal, you know, it's revealed exactly what, what's happening. And it all kind of flickering into vision. Uh, it's like all this unseen. It's almost like I want a footnote going, by the way, a lot of people aren't paying attention here. So we're going to give you this so you could, and all these people start flickering into life. Like I didn't see the tax collector there. Now he's eating. I didn't see Jesus doing this. I didn't see the woman. Uh, Sarah, remember Jeff Kohler was a pastor at, uh, at Palmasia uh, years ago. When he talked about this, he, he reminded us that, uh, Touching the remove the woman, which is the next question is going to come up, removes people from the presence of God. It's almost like you know, if she touches Jesus, they both flicker and, and disappear because they're not appropriate anymore. But it just goes the other way. She becomes part of the community. You see more. The more there's interplay, the brighter the people become, and you you have to see it. There's touching and there's healing. It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't see all this, and oh no, three more people have popped into the scene. I didn't see you before. Uh, so there's another, it's like if I was doing a film, I just had these other human beings, like, I didn't see her. I didn't see you. I didn't see Jesus. What's, what is going on? And it's just this fellowship, the healing of the fellowship. Well, let, let's continue the discussion with another aspect of the passage. And uh, this, John, this question is for you. Let's flip ahead to the commotion at the girl's house. Um, when Jesus arrives, uh, with a healing story in between. Uh, this is the third part of the selection. It begins with some stage setting context at the girl's house. Why does the author feel the commotion and the musicians need to be in this scene and then dismissed? And just a reminder for the folks I only read it once is there's flute players and there's a great uh, bit of distress and commotion at the house when Jesus arrives and he dismisses them. John, what do you think? Why why is that written in? Why is that important? 
Um, well, I'll first want to say by as, uh, that as a former saxophone player in the marching band, I'm delighted that the flute players are getting called out and sent out uh, outside. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, my sister was a flute player. Uh, no, uh, I, I think um, I think the commotion, the the distraction, the noisiness in my mind as I kind of picture the scene is necessary for a couple reasons. Um, one, it's part of the mourning process. So having these folks here, it tells us in the scene that this girl really is uh, dead. This isn't just, you know, um, um, something that, you know, it gives some validity to her situation. These are mourners there. So she's really deceased. Um, to me, it provides a lot of noise and distraction, which sets up once they are kicked outside. For, it just sets this, a stage for me where now that noise is outside and I, uh, then I envision a much calmer and quiet moment inside where we hear that Jesus um, takes her hand uh, and, 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 and she gets up. So the healing, um, you know, that he says, go away. So the girl's not dead, but sleeping. So it, to me, it kind of sets up the, the, the quietness of that moment in which she takes her hand and, and heals her, revives her, um, uh, which is, which is huge because, um, you know, we, we hear and think a lot about healings, but to bring someone back from the dead is, is, is a pretty big deal in terms of the healing. So that, 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 um, that moment happens. And then the other piece for me that struck, struck me, though, was they laughed at him. And um, so the, the folks are dismissed outside, and he says, she's not dead but sleeping, and they laugh. And so it, it – and, and in my mind, it's a mockery kind of laugh, right? It's like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, guy. Um, and so um, that that's a piece I, I don't know that I have an answer for, but it makes me kind of wonder about what, what does, where are there moments in our world or in my life even or in my faith where the, the, um, the audacity of what Jesus can do is mocked or laughed at. You know, like that, that just couldn't happen, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and then the last thing, I think, just from a practical perspective, it's a good thing that they're there and then they witness this happening because then the last line of this passage is the report of this spread throughout the district. So I think there are some of the chief ones who are helping spread that word is these jokers who were laughing at these, these lousy flute players who were laughing at them are now the chief folks spreading the word about what just happened. So, um yeah, so that's why I think that's in there. Thank you. And I guess r relating to the parable of the rotten flute players in, uh, in the Gospel of John. There you uh, the go. <laughs> Thank you for the band analogy. <laughs> uh, I, I'm with you on uh, on almost a tradition that's going on here. Uh, what's going on in that house, given the nature of that household, we all have our traditions. But given that household and their traditions and their faith and how they work in the community, everything going on in that room is appropriate and normal. The commotion, the distress, the, the mourning, whatever it is, whatever that disruption is, is what you would expect to find. It's not a shock. It's what you would expect. And the flute players are part of the tradition, too. I, I don't know exactly you know, what the ancient world would have expected, but I take it as normalcy. And so normalcy, you know, goes to the laughter. It's almost like 
their laughter is related to Jesus being disrespectful. Um, and even in throwing out the normalcy of mourning and shock and sadness and the music that's going on, he's disrupting the proper thing. He's disrupting life. What he's doing is improper because this is a, this is a family in a community that is already moving on. Right? Whatever's happened before is over. We have our memory. We're dealing with this. This is a phase that we're going through. We're not backing this up. We're, and it may be, you know, true. I'm going to assume it's a community of love. They're shocked. They're doing the proper things. We're moving on. There's a, there's a natural thing that's going to take place here. How dare you? How dare you interrupt this? Uh, this is what we've done for years. We did this when we lost. A, a, a parent. We did this when we lost somebody. It's what we do. I mean, it, you know, let, I would suggest that when you take on Jesus as being really rude, even though he's summoned by a person from the family, it still puts him in a position of being rude. And I like that because it it turns everything on its head. It is it is hard to believe, but he's got to go backwards. And I was thinking, John, this it makes me think of the tomb stories. But all the Gospels. In, this, in Matthew, I think the tomb story is really kind of, he's not here. <laughs> you know, the other tomb stories have a lot more. But this one's, you know, he's, what are you looking for? He's not here. And I know I've talked about this over and over again, but you go to the tomb of Jesus because there's a job to do. You care for the body. You finish what is unfinished. You move on, and you preserve the memory of the great teacher. Just like they're going through a process to preserve the memory, a lock in time, this lost daughter. How dare you? How dare you disrupt the preservation of the memory and the comfort we're showing each other? That's how, I mean, how, you know, the gospel's like, wow, talk about flickering into place here. My gosh. So uh, I like that, and that the mourning process is actually unacceptable. Uh, not here. And he has to actually throw them out. I'm almost thinking of money changers getting thrown out of the temple. I mean, this is, he may not be violent. He's not overturning tables. But it is a violent disruption of a tradition and a behavior that is no longer acceptable. How about you, Sarah? What do you think? Okay. Um, I think that this presents the reader with a bit of foreshadowing and deliberate disrupt, disruption to provide a shift in expectation, right? The normal course of things in the world in which Jesus walks is if illness presents itself, death is on the way, right? There's a consequence that travels with sickness. There's not a lot of known medicine. We don't have penicillin. We don't have Advil. We don't have Sudafed. We don't have those things that would have provided some meek our, our modest measure of health or our um, relief from symptoms. So people, the mortality rate is probably very high. And so here we have this ex- expected that when people get sick and die, they're dead, done. We're, you know, we, we go through the exercise and the normal behaviors, and you said normalization here. So I think Jesus is disrupting this. Uh, I think this is the one of the first opportunities we have to see what is coming 
when it comes to changing or shaking the Etch-A-Sketch in a permanent way. Um, so I think let's see what the good physician can do. I mean, that's kind of being presented to us. Jesus dispels this expectation, and in turn, the mourners who have gathered to, to announce the death, to publicly witness the death, to be a part of the process of, of um, moving through this particular phase of loss, um, he dispels them like he does, and I, I thought exactly like you did, of the woman at the well, of the woman at the tomb who come to do the memorialization of Jesus' body, and it's gone. So there's some dispelling there. And then the disciples run to the tomb, and it, he's not there. And so it's this wonderful um, shifting of expectation, disruption of, of the normal stage or the normal progression of things. The other thing that struck me is here's a father arguing for a daughter who's dead. And there's a woman who's a daughter whose father is not arguing for her, who has been treated as dead but is not. And so there's, there's, there's this interesting story that wraps around us, and I always love these Oreo cookie sandwich stories because they often present us with things that are like and things that are unlike, to look at the contrast or, or to, what's the right word that Charles Willard would use when you lay a story next to another one? Parable. Um, so I see the woman who has the hemorrhage as the unclaimed daughter. And I see this child, this beautiful child, who the father's arguing for, um, you know, if you just come, I know she will be well, that you will heal her. So there's this interesting presentation of faith and that one of the ladies doesn't have a father to speak on her behalf. And she knows by faith, if I just touch him. So I like the, the way that this, the, the questions are layered and, and invite us to step further out onto that wonderful faith bridge between them. Uh, so that's kind of where I landed. Thank you. Well, one more question. Let me go to that. We've done the first of the story, the meal and the observers, and then we've done uh, the commotion at the girl's house. Let's go to that middle of that Oreo cookie, which is the woman along the way, uh, healing along the way to the girl's house is another familiar story. So I was asking everybody to reflect on the elevation of her internal discussion into print and the storytelling of the church because we tell about this today and the resulting pursuit to touch Christ. So I was going to raise up the fact that the writer has determined that we need to listen to her inner dialogue before she makes her move. And uh, I'll, I'll kick it off and then John, I'll come to you and then Sarah, you'll get the, you'll get the wrap up. I'm always moved when the scripture reveals the internal life. It's uh, and I'm reminded of folks who look at uh, literature like Shakespeare and going, "Oh, what a breakthrough!" The dialogues and the soliloquies, and I'm like, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute!" Jesus and the Gospels and the writers of the Gospels are always dealing with the life, the inner life, and I, I just 
pull that up to people that uh, that is that is there the pursuits and the struggles that lead us there and the example I would give is the child if I did something and I can hear my parents voice going Donnie what were you thinking what were you thinking and uh, this is a gospel that says they were thinking and uh, and we're going to hold that up sometimes we have it in parables too you know, we have a rich man going, well, self, you know, I'm going to eat, drink, and be happy. It's all this internal. No fear of that at all. Uh, and I think the recognition, for me, it recognize what being fully human is and the inner, the inner life, the inner dialogue, and the inner struggle. It goes hand in hand with all the observations that are taking here and often prompts someone like the father to go up to Jesus and say, my daughter has died. I think we're also asked to imagine what's going on everywhere on the inner side. What's, what, is the inner, what are the inner thoughts at that meal? What was Matthew's inner thoughts? I, I think we're encouraged to overlay that. What, what was he thinking? It's okay. it's okay to say things like that because here we are. The setup is there's an internal conversation, and this woman is going, hmm, should I, shouldn't I? What is it? And what's driving her, and thinking about what you talked about earlier, John, is there's an urgency, desperate, pain, sadness, frustration, hope, last hope. All of that's loaded into a very simple internal discussion. It's all there. It's heavy, heavy. What prompts her to move to do something that's probably incredibly inappropriate? Uh, what is it? What prompts that? So I... I I like that this holds up the inner life and that what's behind all of these, whenever I see, I think I'm trying to think of a, a gospel story of the inner life. It isn't about some seeking right or wrong, some pursuit. And in this case, we have two people that are pursuing or deciding to pursue. Shall I pursue an idea or a solution? Yes, I will. And in this case, it's so simple. It's just a basic touch. So Jesus is aware. He hears. Uh, and I think it reminds me of the mind work that's going on all the time that we are seeing in our pursuits. And in this case, the inner life overruns uh, everything that we see here. Without that inner life, none of this thing would be possible. And if I were writing another question for this, it would probably have something to do about the inner life and change and the connection between the seeking and even what, what's held up here, I think we're talking about this desperation and the urgency that drives us to pursue Christ. I don't know if there's a fine line or a gray area or whether it's just washing over, but it seems like the seeking and the pursuit sure sounds like prayer. John, what do you think? Uh, well, I think as I kind of reflect on this internal dialogue or monologue that, that she has, at first glance, it's kind of like, oh, this is like magic thinking. You know, if I only do this, this will happen. Uh, but I think as we kind of scratch underneath that surface level thinking a bit, I mean, I think I mentioned it earlier and you highlighted it too, Don, I think there's a desperation in that in that statement. If if I can only do this, I will be made well, right? And, and um, her desperation does result in the outcome that she's seeking, right? She is she is made well. Um, but I think that that, that desperation um, comes from a place of faith. 
and um, faith that she will be healed. And I think, I think we see that same desperation in the leader who throws himself at the feet of Jesus in an act that is very um, humbling for him to do and out of place and out of character for his, his station, who he is. Uh, and so, um, you know, we have this, these kind of threads of desperation, but that, that come from a place of faith. Um, but, but in her story, we hear that she is healed, um, and, and Jesus says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. But I would say that it is, I mean, he names her faith as making her well, but it's Jesus is the one that does the healing, but her faith is the agent, the impetus for that healing. Um, and that, and that's reflected in that kind of desperate, um, dialogue that she has. And, and Sarah, I appreciate you lifting up that, that daughter language, because I noted that too. And to me, both him saying, um, you know, daughter, your take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then the very next thing we get to is the healing of someone's daughter um, uh, is a reminder that we're all children of God, that we're all beloved children of God. And so um, kind of draws me into that story. Uh, I have daughters, but also, but just a reminder that, that I am a child of God. I, I think there's a lot going on when we look at this. Um, this passage, right? We've got uh, the call of Matthew, these wonderful healing stories. Um, we've, we've got, um, you guys have highlighted the movement that I didn't really notice as much of, of pursuit and uh, of Jesus and Jesus pursuing. And, and, and we have, um, you know, folks who are desperate and, and seeking healing. And then we also have the ordinary where Jesus calls Matthew right out of his ordinary daily job, so to speak of life. And, and and all are this movement from those who are excluded to being included. And, and so um, I think, you know, there's just a ton of stuff going on in here. And then the last piece that I would want to lift up is, is these, these stories of healing for me and, and even the beginning with Matthew and kind of the recognition of who's well and who's sick. For me, it's an invitation to kind of to recognize and to name my own brokenness my own need for um, Jesus, my own need to pursue Christ for healing. What are the parts of my life that I need to have maybe some desperation to say I need to reach out and touch that cloak? Um, and so, I, but I think that's not just me. I think we're all in, in need of some form of healing and some form of help. And just as Christ is there and responds to the leader and to the woman with attention and love and mercy, uh, just as uh, you know, Christ, Christ does that for us as well. And, and just as Christ calls a tax collector um, from his daily job and says, you know, come follow me, Christ calls us to, to even in our broken and our ailing state to come follow him and do the same thing and engage in a ministry of, of love and sharing Christ's mercy to all beloved children of God. Thank you. Uh, let me stay on that just for a minute. And if I, if I'm off, pace with this question, you could just dismiss it, and we could do the Charles Willard, which is pass, but I was hearing a caution in what you were saying about this, I think, um, and I think we've talked about in the past, it's, uh, you know, I think Sarah, we said, you know, be, be, be careful, this is not a Tinkerbell passage, and, and you know that, you know, it's like, you clap really hard, you really, you know, clap, 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 clap. That, that that's not what be, that's not what this is. 
process. This is about an authentic individual who is revealed to us through the, the boldness of the gospel, including her inner life, uh, who pursues Jesus specifically. But I, I'm just, just checking. I kind of heard a caution in you about that. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that, Don. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I, I want to say it's easy for us. It's exactly right. It's a word of caution. It's, it's, it's easy for us to say, oh, this is just magic thinking on her part. If I do this, this will happen and all will be well. But I think there's much more to it than that. I mean, she's coming at it from a place of faith and, and truly believes that if I do this, something will be different. Um, and, and that is the result that we see. So, yeah, I would agree. It, we don't, I think we want to be careful not to dismiss her dialogue, dismiss her thinking as just some desperate woman. Um, but she's truly coming from a place of faith, which Jesus names and lifts up in his dialogue with her to say, daughter, your faith has made you well. Right. Take heart. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, uh, you get the wrap up. What do you think about this in, the, in our life that's revealed here? So let's look at separation, because I think that's part of the story. Matthew has been cut away, if you will, from the body of faith. Uh, he's a tax collector, which probably means people perceive him to be someone who um, skims, who takes more than he's entitled to, who works for the enemy, who um, who is making a living at other people's um, hardship. <clears throat> and he's been segregated and, and kept separate from the faithful the people who are pious, the people who are perceived to be um, knowledgeable leaders in the faith. So I kind of say, when we stand on the other side of judgment, we're often a Matthew. When we're the receiver of the judgment being passed, we're often excluded, we're often isolated, we're often treated um, as if we are ill, um, like a leper, and then we have this interesting story of Jesus going to Matthew, inviting Matthew, including Matthew, going to eat at his home, which were all behaviors that would have made Jesus unclean. And, and you alluded to this at the beginning. But yet Jesus, being of pure heart, I suppose, um, instead of being made unclean, makes Matthew clean. So there's some beauty there. Um, the 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 pursuit of the synagogue leader, and, and you know, wouldn't it be lovely if it was Nicodemus? Wouldn't it be lovely if it's if that's how the story starts? That Nicodemus is the one whose daughter has been revived, but we don't have that name. And Charles would counsel me, no, don't do that. And so I'm I'm cautious about that. But my my little brain, who wants to cinematize everything in the the Bible sees it as possible, great story to be told, um, but we have this this authentic member of the congregation, this leader of the faith, experiencing a moment of crisis, and he pursues Jesus for this healing, and Jesus bridges that separation that the daughter has from the father and brings them back together. So we're seeing separation being brought in as a, um, something that needs to be healed. And then along the way, we get this woman. 
And so she's been shunned. She's been forced to announce herself as unclean. She can't prepare meals for her family. She can't be a part of a family. So she's been forced to keep herself separated. What kind of private wounding is this? I'm just going to go out on a limb. I think this is so messed up. I'm thinking about COVID. I'm thinking about mask wearing, about taking preventative steps to keep others from being sick. And how much in our little culture, our small-minded culture, did we see resistance to doing just those same just kind things, wearing a mask to prevent somebody who is an immunosuppressed person from becoming sick, wearing a mask to keep other people well. And yet this woman has voluntarily segregated herself for 12 years, 12 years of isolation, social marginalization, and judgment. And when she's healed by, Jesus, by touching Jesus' garment, it's both physical and psychological. He calls her daughter and reclaims her into the community, breaking that separation again. And she's now being brought back into the family. I'm thinking about Legion. I'm thinking about, you know, what can I do? Can I follow you? And he goes, no, stay here, tell your story. And how often that is the hard healing that needs to take place between a community and who they've shunned. And I think the shunned person needs to be healed to that community as well. So I think that there's some wonderful glimpses of the disruption that Jesus is bringing when he he brings resolution and restoration into situations that were going to be life-threatening separations. I just, I love this. I'm with you, John. I think that there's so much here and that we can pause and just look for a moment at each one of these things and go, double-click that because there's like nine years of information right here. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, on that, uh, we're out of time. Uh, Palmasia Presbyterian Church that makes this podcast possible is at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida, and you're always welcome there. And uh, we commend to you the website, palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. Go to that site for other discussions of the lectionary, Um, disagreements, studies, reflections, uh, great sermons, outstanding music, opportunities to participate in communion. So check that out. And you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.